Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today we talk to Ismael Hernandez, founder of the Freedom and Virtue Institute, about how civil society can come together to promote or to undermine healthy self-reliance. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right, thank you for joining us. For another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers, I am your host, Jeremy Beer, coming to you from a beautiful Phoenix, Arizona on October 20th, 2021. Today, I am pleased to have as my guest, Ismael Hernandez, founder and executive director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute, which promotes individual liberty, self-reliance, and human dignity, especially among at-risk, underprivileged children and individuals enduring hardship. Uh, Mr. Hernandez has an extraordinary personal story, which I will not spoil here uh, by giving it away. That's the first thing we're going to ask him uh, to talk about. But I will say that he was formerly the executive director of the African Caribbean American Catholic Center, that he lectures frequently for Acton University and the American Enterprise Institute, and that he is the author of Not Tragically Colored, Freedom, Personhood, and the Renewal of Black America. That book was published just a few years ago by the Acton Institute. Uh, Ismael Hernandez, welcome. Thank you. It's, it's an honor, a pleasure to be with you. Likewise, it really is uh, great to have you uh, on and with us today and to hear more about your story and what you're doing uh, with the Freedom of Virtue Institute, but also, of course, on the themes and, and issues and topics that the Institute deals with. Um, before we get to all that, um, let's talk about your background. Let's just start right there because I think... Um, <laughs> You have a background that's a little bit different than, than most people, certainly than most people who are sort of running think tanks. Um, tell, tell us where you, about your, your childhood, your, your youth. I know it's very important to what you're doing now and, and how it shaped uh, your current um, vocation. Certainly. I, I am from Puerto Rico and I was born in the 1960s into a communist household. My father being founding member of the Puerto Rican Socialist Party, a Marxist-Leninist organization heavily al aligned with the Cuban Revolution and with the thought of the cultural Marxist uh, Antonio Gramsci of Italy. And mm -hmm. I grew up listening to my father daily harangues against Yankee imperialism and capitalism and, and going to the communist cell meetings and having to listen to the never-ending speeches of Fidel Castro, seven-hour speeches you had to sit down and listen to. My goodness, seven-hour speeches? <laughs> yes, uh, six, seven hours, and uh, you are five or six-year-old. And my father used to say that America was the enemy of the human race, and every decent person would fight to, to destroy America, and I, I believe him. He's my dad. Uh, so I grew up in that kind of environment. I always say I was a red diaper baby. Right. Uh, because I was grew, uh, was born into into Marxist uh, ideology. I, I remember my father uh, telling my mother constantly that he will give the f lives of these four children we have at home for a revolution, and we will come and console her. But deep inside of me, I wanted what my father was offering. He was intoxicating. It was this idea that we had this radical capacity of reason and act action to to 
change the world and bring about heaven on earth without God, of course, but heaven on earth. And we will one day realize the utopian uh, uh, Marxist uh, society. And I joined the party with him. And my father left an extensive FBI file uh, denoting 40 years of communist activity, two court cases for terrorism, and a life dedicated to the Marxist ideology. And to this day, I remember that night when my mother was crying again and, and she burst out of the home in the middle of the night. And I was so young and so scared for her. And she went to speak with two men who were always in front of her home. And many years later, I found out that they were FBI agents fight. You know, checking on my father, following my father, and and I hated them. I hated them for the Puerto Rican poverty of the 1960s, for the bad marriage between mom and dad, because she was in love with him and he was in love with revolution. But my mother will sneak me with my older brother to go to mass with friends without my father knowing about it because he was an unbeliever and he would not have allowed his children to be contaminated with the opium of the people. That keeps you thinking on heaven while the capitalists are having a good time here on earth, as my father used to say. <laughs> but my father, uh, so I, I develop a sort of double consciousness, you know, Marx and Jesus, the revolution and the kingdom, all uh, really frustrating and confusing and 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 eventually later on in my life I wanted to to merge that double consciousness that that happened in my in those early years of my existence and what was a good catholic and communist boy to do I joined the Jesuit order of course <laughs> <laughs> because there I could, like, you know, I could have my cake and eat it too. This was I, over the years have been here, Ismail. This was in mid nineteen eighties and the second part of the nineteen eighties. The liberation theology sort of heyday in Latin America. Would you say exactly? Uh, liberation theology was uh, all over Central America. A revolution was brewing there, and they were going to send me to Sandinista, Nicaragua, to study philosophy. You can imagine, that was the heart of the revolution in the 1980s, and I was going to be part of that, that. And I was excited about it. I did my first two years, and I was heading to Sandinista, Nicaragua, to study with the masters of liberation theology, those men who who invented the concept, basically, who were professors at the University of El Salvador, which was at the border with Nicaragua, and uh, Ignacio Yacuría, Juan Luis Segundo, Gustavo Gutierrez, all these men who, who invented that concept, but it never happened. To, to make a long story short, seven Jesuits were murdered in El Salvador in 1986, and I was going to be living in the home where they were massacred. So... Out of concern for us, they did not send us to Nicaragua. And that's when I left seminary. I did not have a vocation to the priesthood. I wanted to be a priest in Nicaragua fighting America. That's different. Right. When, right. when, that, when that didn't happen, I, I left seminary almost immediately. And I was angrier than ever uh, about uh, uh, the gods of the monster, as we used to call America in the party. What came after you discovered that uh, you did not have a vocation to the priesthood? Well, I returned to my little uh, town of Isabella, and uh, eventually uh, some friends of mine decided and convinced me 
to come to the United States to further my studies, to do my master's and PhD in political science. I had done my, my bachelor's degree in political science because I wanted to intellectually defeat America right. in Puerto Rico. And uh, eventually I came to America and I landed at the University of Southern Mississippi of all places. So you can imagine this black boy, black Puerto Rican boy who hates America lands in Dixie. It seems <laughs> unlikely to me that the University of Southern Mississippi was sort of a communist hotbed in the in the late eighties. Uh, <laughs> I assume that's true. Exactly. <laughs> Not exactly, uh, you know, a Reed College or something like that. Absolutely, absolutely. I have had some friends who have been there. It was in the south. It was inexpensive, so they convinced me. I didn't have any money, so they convinced me that that was a good place for me, and that's where I landed. And a I always say that my, my lungs were filled with the air of freedom coming to America because for the first time in my life, I, ha I had the opportunity to challenge the safe assumptions of my ideology. I have right. learned the, the Marxist catechism from a Marxist father. I have intently studied Marxism, but I had never challenged my ideology. And, uh, you know, ideologies are like a pair of glasses you put a, a, on yourself and And through that prism, you look at reality and, and it's, it's difficult to, to surrender that pair of glasses and put on a new one. And that was trusted to me, not because I wanted, but it was life that intervened. And I believe grace intervened. And I, I began to question those assumptions by the lived experience of freedom that I had in America. Mm. So it was merely just being in, in the, in the U.S., uh, even at a, a college or university. Uh, that that made the glasses start, sort of start to slip off your nose, so to speak. Absolutely, I I discovered, uh, began to dimly discover a new way of looking at the human person, a new <laughs> way of looking at, at anthropology, new anthropology. What it means to be human as a Marxist, you're a drop in a wave, mm -hmm. and the wave has meaning and value, and within that wave, you had you had that value. Outside of the, the the wave, you are nothing. You are a curious accumulation of atoms destined to nothingness when you die. Uh, but I began to see a different way here in America. What, one thing happened to me. I had good grace and they rewarded me. Uh, they they gave me a full assistantship, paying me all my studies. Uh, and I said, you know, I hate their guts and they're rewarding me. This is not supposed to be happening. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I began to see dimly, as I said, that this connection between reward and accomplishment and that human dignity resides in every individual person because we have the moral capacity of self-realization, each one of us individually have this capacity of reason to know the truth and of volition, the capacity to make choices so we can do the good. And in knowing the truth and doing the good lies the dignity of the human person. And that is what I begin to discover here in, in the United States. There must have been, besides the, your own sort of lived experience, um, there must have been some thinker, some, some teacher or writer that, that affected you during this period? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, for the first time in my life, I pick up books I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> uh, you, you stay from that stuff. It's Yankee propaganda. You, we have right. the truth in Marxism. You don't, we don't need to, to explore other ideas. We need yeah. to defeat those ideas. Right. So I began to, to explore the thought of the great Thomas Sowell, uh, mm -hmm. that to this day be, is one of my heroes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
also Hayek, Mises, mm -hmm. the Founding Fathers, the, the Federalist Papers, uh, David Horowitz uh, in his uh, great autobiography, which I read and I saw myself in certain ways and saw my father in him. Right. So I began to explore it a new universe of ideas that I did not know existed hmm. and began to ch be challenged by both the experience of freedom and these ideas about my dignity and, and the dignity of every person and the, the, the free society that has space for subjectivity, that I am not an object moved by forces outside of my control, but I am a the subject of meaning capable of changing my cho my life by the choices I make. And I believe that that's exactly what we are missing when we are trying to help the poor here in America. Mm -hmm. you, you found, before we get on to that uh, and what you're doing now, I, I just want to ask you, do you found these ideas, which are sort of classical liberal ideas, in some cases just sort of more ideas more uh, central to the Western sort of constitutional tradition, uh, it's, it's tradition, uh, a philosoph philosophical tradition, a Christian philosophical tradition, perhaps very intoxicating and appealing. But what is it about, or what was it about uh, Marxism that your father found, and others, obviously throughout Latin America during this time period, found so appealing? Uh, you know, what, wherein, to, in your opinion, sort of like the key to its appeal? I think that Marxism is very good in identifying a very clear enemy, mm. someone or some force upon which we can really place blame that really helps us to get to the background and not look at ourselves. So we have this victim-victimizer, oppress-oppressor dichotomy, and the idea that society advances to a higher state of consciousness through the through that oppositional force between between enemy and 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 and, the, and foe and, and and friend, and that really gives you a very clear aim that is not that doesn't challenge you in the deep recesses of your or your insecurities and your needs and your psychological fears and the need for self-improvement. Mm -hmm. If you are the one who is to blame for my condition, I now have a goal in life. I need to make you change. What we don't understand in that kind of system is that, that you still have the power and I still am not in control because my change depends on your activity. And that's the difference between activism and activity. Activism is when I yell at you so you change, and activity is when I engage myself in productive activity so I can be the master of my own destiny. Uh, I am in control of my own journey. But Marxism is very good at identifying enemies, identifying forces, and they have tactics like the United Front, right. uh, a world revolution. Uh, they are very good at creating flags and slogans right that keep you thinking about the enemy and how to defeat the other well you might say that it, because they're so good at identifying enemies they're also very good at, at building a kind of um uh, usness uh, I, I i hesitate to call it a community but uh, they're they're good at binding people together in opposite if you have a good enemy if you're good at articulating who the enemy is by definition you're also good at binding people together uh, against that enemy right absolutely this us against them works 
because it appeals again to the base instincts of the human person to to protect yourself and to bind together with others that you perceive in the same predicament as you. So you can create a sense of community and at this, at the same, a sense of common destiny and at the same time a sense of a common purpose to yeah. defeat the enemy and bring about some kind of state of affairs that we see as pleasant and, and better than the one that we have in front of us. It's a mirage. It seldom happens or never happens in actuality, but it gives you an aim. And sometimes we we don't realize that it's precisely because Marxism always fails that it gives people another journey of def- right. for defeating the enemy. In, in its failure lies its uh, continued success. Exactly. It's, it's bizarre. It is counterproductive, but it, it works. <laughs> Was your father still alive when you sort of had your intellectual conversion? Uh, uh, yes, and that was part of the pain, my painful story in that regard because the last five years of our lives, uh, we were not even in speaking terms because he could not accept that the most revolutionary of his sons had joined the enemy, basically, mm-hmm. was having doubts. Right. There's nothing more difficult for a revolutionary than to have doubts about the, the revolutionary cause because the revolutionary cause is what gives sustenance to your existence. You know, we were an authentic Marxist-Leninist household. We, right. are no, we were not like this American, you know, cafe latte, sleeping, <laughs> iPhone-texting American revolutionaries, you know, those who go to the rally in the morning and shopping at the Gap in the afternoon. You know, <laughs> We were authentically revolutionary, and and I was losing my father as he saw me having doubts. Uh, That was difficult. And that's what was the most curious thing, because as I was surrendering these ideas at great personal cost, I saw many of you Americans embracing the very ideas I was surrendering. Yeah. So t- take us from then uh, this sort of conversion experience or deconversion anyway from Marxism to uh, something else, whatever you want to call it, uh, to the Freedom and Virtue Institute and the work you're doing now. Absolutely. I, as I finished my master's degree in political science and I went to work in ministry in, in the inner cities of America. And as I said, I began to see the same assumptions, the same wrong anthropology that is collectivist and boxes people into meaningless labels that are collectivist as, as, as Marxism is, the mm. poor, the rich, blacks, and whites. These, these ideas and this ant- false anthropology was alive and well in the way we treated the poor, even in ministry, even in churches. Uh, we we became poverty managers, managing people's poverty, but keeping them more or less well-fed, but still in dependency. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were invested in the very problem of poverty that we were supposed to be fixing because poverty is what brings the money in. Right. And, and uh, I remember being in my ministry desk, sitting there one day, and saw the line of people coming for food and... and uh, I began to see the children of those I have been giving food for a long time coming themselves for food. 
And I realized that I, that was my defeat. That was a sign of, of, of how invested I was in this cycle of dependency. Uh, and I decided that enough was enough, that I was not going to participate in that kind of system of degradation that disrespects the poor with a smile and with a bag of food. Mm. And I quit my job in ministry and I began this the Freedom and Virtue Institute because we thought that what was needed was a solid foundation of real, authentic principles of human flourishing, not of poverty alleviation. Mm. Because when people flourish, poverty will be taken care of. And when you talk about flourishing, you are looking the poor face to face. You are not looking at the lack. You are not looking at the need. You are looking at the person. You are not seeing people as problems to be solved, mm-hmm. mouths to be fed, and bodies to be clothed, but as subjects of meaning that can change their lives by the choices they make. And that really excited me. Uh, just distributing stuff you know sometimes we give the poor stuff and more stuff and the 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 dignity of the poor cannot breathe under the weight of the free stuff we dump at them (laughs) and and we need to change that and that's what we decided to do with the freedom and virtue institute and began to create projects that that highlighted the the full scope of human dignity, intrinsic and existential dignity. Well, let's break right there. Uh, Ismael Hernandez, we'll be right back to talk more about um, the Freedom of Virtue Institute, uh, flourishing versus poverty alleviation, that people are not just problems to be solved and much, much else that is this fascinating. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Time for one of our lovely practicalities. And today I have with me my colleague, Jake Lowell, consultant here at American Philanthropic. How are you doing, Jake? Great, Jeremy. How are you? So, Jake, uh, you, you're a consultant for us, but um, you came up uh, through American Philanthropic's ranks as a research analyst, which meant you sat in front of your computer and stalked people. Uh, That's right. That's yeah, one way to say it. Intensely. <laughs> Um, donors and prospects, just trying to find out everything we could about them for for clients. Um, and you have some tips for how to do that research today, right? That's correct. So, what do we need to do? Uh, maybe even we think we let's stipulate that we know the why. We know why we want to find out about our donors sure. and prospects. But yeah, how do we how do we do good research on them and find out things that are truly useful to us as we try to build relationships with them? Yeah, sure. Well, well, I'll go over a couple softwares that I really like to use. But before that, let me say that the main thing you need is a healthy dose of curiosity. Okay. Right. Uh, and curiosity about people and how they work and what what motivates them. Uh, and and once you once you have that, everything else comes comes a little bit easier. Um, so I normally tell new researchers or clients that we work with three tools that uh, they can use. They're iWave, Foundation Directory Online, and whitepages.com. iWave? That's correct. Foundation Directory Online, whitepages.com. I'm going to let, we get no money from these places. There's no referral. This is, this is straight up advice. That's, that's correct. And, uh, you know, th- there's other tools and Plenty of fun gadgets you can use if, if you if you have the money and you're ready ready to get into it. Uh, but 
frankly, if you have those three tools, you can do donor research um, really, really well. And that's that's what I would use if, if I were to be in a, a smaller nonprofit. And what kinds of things will we find out when we go to those platforms? What what can we discover? Sure. iWave is, is particularly valuable for individual donor research um, because with a really quick search, you can find, uh, you can get a good general idea of the individual's uh, interests because you can have access to their public publicly available donations. You can have access to their publicly available political gifts mm-hmm. and you can see where they live. Um, yeah, which is always useful. Yeah. Seeing what somebody's home Absolutely. is like, what neighborhood they're in. Uh, of course, with Zillow, their address as well, right? You can get some idea of the value of their property. Yeah, that's right. It all sounds very creepy to people who are not used to doing this work, but it helps you determine who you're dealing with. Uh, what else can you find out? So it's good. It's, obviously, it's helpful before you go into a meeting to know the sort of political leanings of somebody if, if they have such leanings. Um, can you find out kind of like their wealth? Like, is there, are there numbers available for that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. iWave does have a wealth screening tool as well. I don't really like to use it, frankly. That's just me. Um, but if you if you spend enough time looking at people's results in iWave, you, you'll start to get an idea of who's wealthy. Um, and, and it's really just based off of what boards they sit on, which is another thing you can find in iWave. Uh, what... Um, the, the the size of their gifts, the frequency of their gifts, okay. things like that. So so you have to again have to have a little bit of curiosity. And foundation directory online, uh, it, this is it, I, this is the Cadillac of foundation research. Much better than GuideStar or Charity Navigator or whatever, right? Um, what kind of things can you find out on there? Yeah, that's exactly right. the The value of foundation directory online. Um, is that in addition to being a place where you can find a foundation's tax documents, it also creates helpful graphs. Um, and based on that, without without reaching reading through you know thirty pages of, of mm-hmm. IRS tax documents, which which gets old even for the nerdiest of us, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a really fast way to to learn how to do uh, foundation research. The other really helpful thing that that was my favorite thing is that if you're prospecting for new foundation donors, you can simply look at other similar nonprofits to yours and who their uh, donors are and uh, understand the the donor landscape for your state or your region or uh, uh, your even county. You can you can make different specifications, if that makes right. sense. Yeah, fantastic. And then white pages, what do we get from whitepages.com? Phone numbers? Phone numbers, addresses. And yeah. it's it's just much more updated than anything else. Yeah. And uh, those are key pieces of research to have though. Totally. Everyone everyone <laughs> wants to know someone's address and phone number. <laughs> well thanks Jake. I appreciate it. It's always good to know how to stalk people. You're welcome Jeremy. It's nice to speak with you too. We are back with uh, Ismael Hernandez, founder and executive director of the Freedom and Virtue Institute. Um, there's a lot of rich <laughs> stuff that you that you just said. Yeah. I think, Ismael, that um, actually, in some ways, I think people instinctively know, but yet it somehow doesn't enter into our um, sort of the uh, machinery, the everyday machinery by which we uh, um, attempt to uh, sort of deal with the well 
what we always call the problem of poverty, right? Exactly. Or the problem of the inner cities or what it might be. Um, talk. So you mentioned, okay, uh, poverty alleviation isn't, isn't what we're doing. We're trying to, to promote human flourishing, and certain principles yes. of human flourishing. What would you say are those principles? Well, first of all, we need to look at the poor as unique and unrepeatable persons made in the image and likeness of God. When you see the person as unique and unrepeatable, you go to every encounter without the assumptions that collectivist labeling brings about. And that is the problem. Sometimes we talk about the poor in the abstract. And we come with, a, with to a, that encounter with the poor, if we ever encounter the poor, with, with those assumptions in mind. So I know everything I need to know about you, and I have not even met you yet. The same happens with the question of race in America. You are white, I know everything I need to know about you, or if you are black, I need, I, I, likewise. Right. So recognizing the subjectivity and uniqueness of every person is essential in poverty alleviation. Number two, that the poor themselves are the protagonists of their own stories of success. They are not to be the scenery in the drama of my good intentions. <laughs> and they, they had to become those protagonists that they act for themselves with our help. But we are secondary aids. You know, we need to leave that idea that we can save the poor. You know, there's one savior and it's not you. <laughs> uh, and many times we have this savior complex because it makes us feel good about ourselves. Right. It makes us do something. In, in other words, we want to actualize our dignity and we instrumentalize the poor for that. Mm -hmm. So we treat, we treat the poor sometimes as we, as we treat our pets. You know, you, you, have the, you have your pet, you put the bowl of food there and the, the dog comes every day and you pat the, the, the dog in the head, makes you feel good and you do it again and again and again. And, and, and that is a transactional system of care that ignores the poor in their individuality, but keeps the, the ball rolling. I always ask uh, many people in nonprofit organizations, if your program is about giving food away for free, what do you need for your budget to grow? More hungry people or less hungry people? Right. You yeah. need more hungry people. Mm -hmm. So we are invested in the problem. So that is the, those are the first principles, the principle of the uniqueness of every human person, their subjectivity, their protagonism in the, in the stories of their lives. And the third is the secondary place of the state and of bureaucracies in, in, in that process of assisting people to have meaningful existence. What, okay, talk about the secondary place of the state. Actually, um, and, and maybe you can connect it to this, which is but you, it's very interesting <clears throat> this is from your website that uh, you say we should ask when we, when we are trying to serve the poor, um, not how may I help you, uh, but does uh, before we create a new program or new, could even contribute to a charity, we should ask, does it work through families, neighbors, and religious or community organizations? Can you explain why that's so important not to do an end run around those things, but to work through those sorts of institutions? Well, one of the principles we, we believe in is called bonding, and another is categorization. 
two persons with the same need, what, what with different values and lifestyles should be treated differently, not the same way. Mm-hmm. So in that way, you, you, you recognize the, the authentic human need, not the apparent need. And you don't create this crisis situation as the, as the mode of existence. We are creating families in perpetual crisis because crisis is what, what makes other people pay attention to them. It was what, what, what gives them meaning in life. Right. And crisis is the, is, is the, is the way that they can acquire certain benefits. And, and that is. Uh, the importance of bonding with the poor, bonding with individual persons, one person at a time with firmness and with love at the same time, knowing exactly when to give and when not to give. Intelligent giving, intelligent withholding is true charity. After all, compassion means to be there with the one who suffers, to suffer with the poor. Right. That's what compassion is. Many times, many nonprofits and organizations go to the state because there are resources in the state. So we don't want to suffer with the poor. We want to create a bureaucracy. And what is bureaucracy? Bureaucracy simply is the normal human response to complexity. When things are too complicated, what we do? We enumerate things. We use numbers. We, we use uh, concepts that simplify the exercise. So instead of your name, I give you case number one. You know, I can deal with case number one. Or, and I don't want to know about your existential needs, but I know that you need food. So I'm going to give you food. And that is exactly what we do with the poor. So we depersonalize by necessity, trying to simplify the exercise. But because the, the human person is complex by nature, again, by necessity, depersonalization is going to happen. And the question is the question of resources. We need more and more resources because these bureaucracies cannot deal with the complex nature right. of the human person. So we enter into this idea that the government is the only entity that has the resources necessary to meet the need. Those resources really come from the people themselves engaging in productive activity. But as we surrender our responsibility towards each other, and we place those responsibilities into these communities and to these bureaucracies, then we enter into this kind of system that simply traps us in a system of dependency and entitlement. Yeah, essentially, what you're saying is, um, uh, if you boil it down, sort of the institutional incentives that exist now, not only uh, at the governmental level, but just among nonprofit organizations themselves that work uh, with the poor, are, are, are such that uh, things can never get better, <laughs> given, uh, exactly. given, given what the incentives are, um, because it, we have, it's, it's really very quite convicting what you're saying, if we'll allow ourselves to hear it. it, it we, it's not, there are many who would say, ah, no, no, it's it, the proper place, uh, the primary, I should say, not only, but primary sorts of organizations or uh, institutions that should be active in helping to alleviate poverty. Uh, to, to care for the poor are private, you know, nonprofit organizations. Fine. That's great. Yes. But what you're saying is actually, but even there, 
oh, what we're doing, people like me, uh, we're outsourcing our compassion to them, right? We, we Instead of suffering with ourselves, we are saying, well, we'll give money over here. They'll do the suffering with, if anybody does any suffering with, and I can go my merry way. I, I, I make some, you know, I go to, I, I serve in the, the soup kitchen, you know, once a year and, and I call it a day. That's not, what I'm hearing you say is that's not enough. <laughs> exactly. And as you, as you mentioned very well, incentives matter more than dispositions. Right. Incentives matter more than your good intentions. If the systems you create reflect the nature of the human person as free and creative, people prosper. They will prosper. If they don't reflect that nature, people will languish, regardless of how much, how many resources we have. But uh, you're absolutely right. We are imitating the bureaucratic uh, systems of the state in our work. For example, in my church, Christmas is coming. What we do? We put a Christmas tree in the back. The Christmas tree has a piece of paper with a name. And the next Sunday, I bring the bike. And then we have created a bureaucracy in the church. They grab the bike and they dirty their hands with the poor. And I stay here justified and safe, apart far away from the poor themselves. That's what I saw when we started a program. It's called the Self-Reliance Clubs. Mm. Uh, We saw exactly that kind of uh, transactional systems, and we decided to do something about it. Well, tell us about the Self-Reliance Club. That was one of my next questions. So good segue, Ismael. (laughs) Yes. Well, uh, seven years ago, I went to this massive distribution of school supplies. And what did I see there? Well, a, a sea of black and brown kids getting the free, cheap school supplies from a small cadre of white people. And I decided, you know, everyone was, was so happy and I wasn't. I wasn't that, that, that convinced. Number one, why is always us in the receiving end? Uh, I want to be in the giving end. It feels better. Uh, when we are in the giving end. And number two, uh, what were the kids learning? In my opinion, they were learning that there is a benefit at the end of the long lines of dependency. That I go there, when they tell me, I smile at these strangers and they have the good stuff. They give it to me and I go home. I I stay as a passive recipient of magnanimity instead of becoming an active participant in a life built by myself. And, and, and I decided one, that day that that's paternalistic, condescending, and sends the message that this is the normal way of meeting human needs, which is a lie. Mm. Why don't we make them productive? I asked myself, why don't we make them work for it? Why don't we give them the, the gift of work? And we started the clubs. We will go to uh, public schools open a club, the kids join the club and be, be going, begin to work in entrepreneurial initiatives. They create products. We facilitate a space for them to sell their products. The money goes into their own bank account. And at the end of the school year, we have this massive, beautiful uh, field trip to a bank. We hand them their earnings for the year at the door. We, they open their own bank accounts and now they can buy their school supplies mm-hmm. with their own money with their own effort. You see how we surrender, we retreated to the scenery in this drama and they move forward to the forefront of action. The need was met, but it was met by themselves with our help. And that's the difference. That is what is different. It's not whether or not we help the poor meet their needs. It's how those needs are met and what incentives are instantiated 
in the process of meeting those needs. And these clubs began to grow tremendously across the country. Now we are in five states. Uh, we are in 13 schools in Southwest Florida. We're going to be in 11 schools in Fort Lauderdale. We're going to be in Puerto Rico. We have five schools in the Dominican Republic. We are uh, scheduled to be in Kenya, in the country of Kenya very soon, in many, many of the schools there and all over the America. We want to be in every state in America with these self-reliance clubs that are challenging these false assumptions about the poor as passive recipients of magnanimity, entrepreneurship and work are the answers to the problems of poverty. Historically, uh, I just saw the statistic the other day, so I'm going to sound smart and, and, and try to remember it. Um, this was back, this would have been not that many. Probably in the 20s or 30s, it have been, the, I think, early on in the very beginning years of the Great Depression. Um, 90% of Americans in, the, in an early survey thought that relief should always be tied to work, uh, the, that for those who could work. Uh, that 90% thought that work should be a requirement. Um, and that was a more of a, a sense, I think, of justice um, rather than of um, empowerment, uh, sort of the framing that you're giving it here. But eventually that became very unpopular, right? Asking people to um, to work in in um, return for uh, receiving relief, that somehow we were, that was demeaning in and of itself or, or reduced um, people's sense of dignity or maybe made them more visible to the community as poor and needing help um, by virtue of their work. Well, yeah, I assume we probably hear that from time to time from people. What What do you say in response to that? That's a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding what dignity is about. The, we we have come to believe that dignity has only one side to that coin. Mm. We can call it intrinsic dignity, meaning right. that every human person has the same built-in capacities of reason and choice. Because we mirror our Creator. In that double capacity, every person has, is born with those same capacities or uh, potentialities. We see every person the same way. And that is absolutely true. Every human person has the same built-in capacities. But there is a second part of, to that, to that question. We can call it existential dignity. It is the actualization of those potentialities of reason and choice. That's how, that's what makes the difference between, say, Hitler and Mother Teresa. You know, if, 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 if intrinsic dignity was the, the only <laughs> part of the picture, they were, they were, they would have the same dignity, though. And we see a difference between one and the other. I think so, we do intuitively, I think we intuit a difference there. Intuitively, we know that there's a difference here. There's, we're not talking about the same thing. In other words, we are confusing what dignity is. So that fosters biologistic solutions that see the poor only having biological needs and entitlement instead of the actualization of those potentialities, which is a gift that we are giving to the poor, is an opportunity to, to become subjects of meaning, existential needs that are long, people long for, for meaning, for, en for engagement, for involvement. That is why the poor respond positively when those opportunities are given to them. And and that is the anthropological mistake we commit because we go from the heart to the muscle. We feel sorry for people, we give them stuff. That's what happens. We feel sorry for people. Instead of respecting the poor, we feel sorry for them. And then we because we are comfortable, you know, we, we are bored in our own affluence. 
So it's easy for us to say, well, why don't we just give it to them? But isn't that curious that to our own children, do we always give to them whatever they ask whenever they want it? Mm-hmm. Most good parents say no. And when you ask them, they tell you, well, I'm not going to always be there for them. And I want to toughen them up. And, you know, I want them to be strong and self-reliant. And I want them to be successful. And you love your children more than you love anyone else. So why don't you treat the same way the children of the poor? Why do you have this attitude towards others that just give and give to them? You love them less, even though you think you love them more. Well, one of the, it seems to me, yeah, one of the uh, reasons for that or a story that is told and uh, is um, uh, dignity. Another another thing in which we think dignity in here today is 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 victimhood, right? Um, yes, there's a sort of special kind of dignity to be found in a plausible narrative of yes. victimhood. Absolutely, uh, and often those are plausible narratives. I mean, you know, there's there's um, they, they've gained social ground because there is truth to them. Uh, but yes. so, what do you? How do you? You know, how do you give? The due to those narratives that they are due, they give them their just due into, into whatever truth they contain, yet at the same time not allow a sort of victimhood to define someone and, uh, you know, define their relationship to others and what they can demand of others. When you recognize that people struggle and that there may be situations and even structures that impede their development, you have to place those in their proper context as scenery in the drama of their lives actualized. In other words, it is the context against which the character of the people are built. We have made victimization to be the, the protagonist of the story. You see? So right. we don't see the poor anymore. We see only the problem. We see the structures. We, we, we pass the book and we challenge structures and we don't see the person in front of us. It happens with the question of race. Let me very briefly give you a story. My daughter graduated from a Catholic school, a high school, and she was invited to a scholar's night at a, at the university that will remain unnamed. And she goes there. My, my, my wife is African American from South Side of Chicago and Black Puerto Rican. Puerto Rican. She is a girl well covered. And, and, and she went to this scholar's night and she saw that only black and brown kids. Lo and behold, she very soon found that it was a gimmick. There were people that were 2.1, 2.3. My daughter graduated with 4.3. A, a, from a good school and and it was a gimmick to get us Negroes in the university so some bureaucrat could punch you know the, per, the percentage of us Negroes that are there so they get a, a salary increase or a, a bonus right. and she told me that they did not see me you see they did not see me the person in front of them and so it's easy to see people as victims of forces outside of their control instead of active participants in lives built by themselves so we really infantilize people because we see them as incapable of 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 meeting the needs meeting the the standards necessary to improve their lives so it's easier to blame impersonal structures than to deal with the person as as someone once said uh, 
I love humanity. I just cannot stand people. <laughs> you know, in other words, it's easy to talk about structures and theories, uh, but we don't have to deal with, with, with the messy reality of living with each other and working together and suffering together towards making a better life for, for, for everyone. I think that's a good spot, Ismail, to uh, end this wonderful conversation. Uh, how can people... Um get involved with Freedom and Virtue Institute? Yes, uh, people can go to our website, fvinstitute.org. That's the best way to, to connect with us. We, we have other programs. We have a effective compassion training. We go to nonprofits, churches, and we teach them the seven principles of effective compassion. We teach them about the, about the principles of subsidiarity, sphere sovereignty, and how to recreate the programs you, you run to reflect the dignity of the person. And we have a new wonderful program. It's called a, a commonality training that is an alternative to diversity training. Uh, and we that that is focused on the co the universal commonality of human dignity instead of on differences on race. We think that we have found a way to bring people together, the, regardless of race, and create diversity without talking about race. And and that's what we offer with with the commonality training. So they can go to our website fvinstitute.org. It is a tremendous uh, organization. Uh, you're doing tr uh, fantastic work, and you have a great story. Ismail Hernandez, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. Hey, before I let you go, uh, we have our very first Givers, Doers, and Thinkers conference coming up. Uh, it's uh, here in Scottsdale, Arizona on November 17th, 2021, and we'd love for you to join us. If you're in the area, if you're not in the area, come in and join us. It'll be the first uh, in a series of such conferences and events that um, we will be putting on going forward, uh, convening donors and civil society leaders to uh, discuss and maybe even develop practical ways of strengthening American civil society. So join us. Uh, you can learn more about the conference uh, by visiting the event page on either philanthropydaily.com or americanphilanthropic.com. And again, it is on Wednesday, November 17th in Scottsdale. A lot of great people, uh, a lot of great speakers, philanthropists, foundation officers, donors, thinkers, the whole bit. All the givers and doers and thinkers will be there. Please join us. Take care.